Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the short tenure of Liz Truss as the British Prime Minister, following her resignation today, which will prolong the leadership crisis in the UK as the Tories scramble for a replacement, with even the former disgraced Prime Minister Boris Johnson in the running. Joining us from the UK is Patrick Allen, the founder and chair of the Progressive Economy Forum, who sees this latest Tory leader to be forced to step down as a continuum from the original cause of political paralysis that has gripped the country and lowered its economic and international standing, and that is Brexit. First introduced by Prime Minister Cameron, its unworkability then brought down his successor, Prime Minister May, who was followed by one of the lying fools who championed Brexit, Boris Johnson, and now the idiot who thinks she's smart, Liz Truss, has become the latest victim of one of the greatest geopolitical self-inflicted wounds in modern history. Then we'll investigate fears in Norway that Russia may be planning to sabotage Norwegian gas pipelines and infrastructure that are a vital source of energy for Europe, which is facing a cold winter following Russia's cut-off and sabotage of its own gas pipelines to Europe. Joining us is Ambassador Peter Galbraith, an author and former U.S. diplomat. From 1993 to 1998, he served as the first U.S. ambassador to Croatia, where he negotiated and signed the agreement that ended the war in Croatia. From 2000 to 2001, he was Director of Political, Constitutional and Electoral Affairs for the U.N. mission in East Timor, and in 2009, he was Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations serving in Afghanistan. He was previously a staff member of the U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations and is the author of two books on Iraq, including the bestseller, The End of Iraq, How American Incompetence Created a War Without End. And we'll discuss the arrests of eight Russians caught in Norway with drones and electronic equipment, one of whom is the son of a close confidant of Putin's. Then finally, we'll look into a new report from Open Secrets detailing the record amount of money pouring into state races, including state secretary of state offices overseeing elections with 299 Republican election deniers running as candidates in the upcoming November 8 elections. Joining us is Anna Masolia, a researcher, editor and writer based in Washington, D.C. at the Center for Responsive Politics, where she studies foreign influence, digital and political ads, and is responsible for Open Secrets Dark Money Data, as well as its foreign lobby watch. Trained as a lawyer, she was appointed by the U.S. Treasury Department to be a member of the Taxpayer Advocacy Panel, a federal advisory committee to the IRS, and is an editor of a new report at Open Secrets State-Level Midterm Election Fundraising on Track to Exceed $7 Billion. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now from the UK is Patrick Allen, who is the founder and chair of the Progressive Economy Forum. Welcome to Background Briefing, 
Patrick Allen. Thank you. So what is the explanation then for this brief tenure of Liz Truss? I mean, she met recently with President Biden, and I'm told that Biden thought she was actually pretty stupid. How did she get to the position she's in, or was in? Okay, well, uh, I understand that Joe Biden thought that she was stupid, and uh, I think many commentators thought that she was intellectually not up to the job of being prime minister. Not only that, she she lacked charisma and uh, she was not able to communicate. She was a poor performer in parliament. So as to whether she is stupid, well, I, I think maybe she's answered that question herself because what she's done over the last 40 days seems to be incredibly stupid and shows someone who has absolutely no grasp of the realities of economics and of parliamentary democracy, took incredible risks and as a result of has fixed anyone in the UK with debt with much, much higher interest rates, simply as a result of her actions. So you would think that was pretty stupid. And I, I, I think that everybody can judge just how clever she's been. I think the answer is not at all clever and that um, she should never have become prime minister in the first place. Uh, the, what, what happened was actually predicted by many people who thought she should never have been elected prime minister. And sadly, they've been proved correct. So from what you've told us, uh, Patrick Allen, um, it seems like leadership in the Tory party has got progressively worse. The Tory party has managed to get through a number of prime ministers in a very short time. And this this all points to instability caused by the Brexit referendum. Um, Brexit was a, a delusional project, which never really had a chance of success. Um, but was championed by factions in the Tory party who seemed to deny reality in terms of the uh, trading conditions needed for a, a modern economy. Uh, and then um, the Brexit vote having um, been won based on a, a lot of very um, bad lies told to the electorate as to what Brexit would mean, that caused the demise of David Cameron as the prime minister who'd called, called the um, referendum. Then Theresa May was made prime minister and uh, she would never have become prime minister had it not been for the Brexit vote. And she couldn't make sense of the um, Brexit decision. She couldn't get any any agreement through Parliament. So she resigned. Then Boris Johnson became prime minister next and he should never have become prime minister. He was manifestly unsuited for the role due to his background of a lack of integrity, telling lies and a very poor performance. Uh, 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 in uh, ministerial posts as a disastrous foreign secretary under Theresa May. Uh, so although he got Brexit done, it was an impossible deal to make sense of. It was never going to work. Uh, and uh, he was then caught out telling lies and um, uh, being convicted of a criminal offence or, or his own rules, which he had passed through Parliament about lockdown. So he was made to resign. And then um, now the Tory party is scraping the barrel to find the next prime minister. Uh, and the faction that seemed to be in the ascendancy was the crazy group who had been pushing Brexit through from the start, of which Liz Truss was a leading member. And then um, what you may not understand is that the election of a prime minister in the Tory party, well, what they're doing is electing the the head of the Tory party by going to Tory party voters themselves, not to not to people in the country as a whole. So the Tory party electorate was only 180,000 members uh, and they tend to be um, 
the demography of them is that they are tend to be elderly, white, uh, middle class, uh, quite well off, and live in the south of England. And um, therefore, they were they were comfortable um, Brexit supporting people who uh, were delighted to support a program of uh, tax cuts, of which, of course, they would become uh, beneficiaries. So they chose Liz Truss. Uh, so she was chosen by a, an incredibly small number of people who did not represent the people of the UK. Uh, and so she then became prime minister and uh, has uh, lasted a record-breaking 45 days, I think the shortest prime minister on record, uh, for having almost uh, immediately proposed uh, economic uh, measures uh, which had uh, the the world markets had no confidence in because they involved massive tax cuts for the wealthy, which were unfunded. That caused a run against the pound uh, uh, and um, uh, mortgage uh, interest rates uh, rising and her popularity plummeted overnight and her position became impossible to maintain. So she resigned this morning. So, uh, yes, she was completely unsuited to become prime minister. She should never have been appointed. Uh, but it all goes back to the instability caused by Brexit. And the other casualty, of course, well, first of all, Brexit itself has been the greatest geopolitical self-inflicted wound, I think, in history. It has yes. paralyzed the UK. It was also surreptitiously in, in part financed by Putin, which, and of course, the fact that an important member of NATO has been paralyzed for so long uh, certainly serves his interest. And on top of that, these wrangling within the Tory party over leadership struggles has also paralyzed the government itself. And they have not addressed some of the important issues, particularly the energy crisis, which should have been, which the Europeans are, are quite aware of because of the Russian cutoff gas. So isn't that one of the biggest casualties of all, the fact that you essentially have a government that's not responding to the crises that it's facing and that the UK is in a terrible position vis-a-vis -vis energy? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the fact is that we haven't really had a functioning government concentrating on the fundamental issues facing the country since the referendum of 2016, because since then, uh, all government energy and the civil service has been devoted to trying to um, implement the Brexit decision, which was, of course, a, a mad decision and a very destructive one. So all this effort has gone into doing something which was of, of no benefit to the country at all. Uh, and therefore everything else became sidelined. Uh, and then with each political crisis, uh, the country or the Tory party in parliament was consumed by trying to resolve who is going to become the next prime minister. Uh, I mean, just taking this summer alone, after Boris Johnson resigned, um, it took, I think, nearly three months for the um, election of Liz Truss to be concluded. In that time, there was a, effectively no government. Boris Johnson was mainly on holiday. No decisions were being taken. Uh, and when that decision finally was taken and trust was appointed, then there was the tragic death of the Queen, which led to uh, two to three weeks paralysis while the funeral arrangements took place. So there was no uh, governing taking place there. And then uh, when trust got to work, of course, her mini budget was a disaster. So, yeah, we've had we've had no uh, we've had no government since Boris Johnson resigned. And you could argue that we've had no effective government since 2016 because the country has been so preoccupied with the self-inflicted wound of Brexit. So now 
uh, again, we're not going to have much government because they, the Tory party has got to work out who's going to become the next prime minister, the successor to trust. And I don't think that's entirely straightforward, despite the fact that they want it to take place in a week. Because, of course, the Tory party is all like rats in a sack. Everyone's now jockeying for position and uh, everybody wants to have another go at becoming prime minister, including um, Boris Johnson himself, who's apparently throwing his hat back in the ring. Uh, Rishi Sunak, uh, Suella Braverman, Penny Mordaunt, um, you know, any number of candidates wanted to have a go. Uh, so it may not be straightforward enough to get the thing concluded within a week. And of course, the British people are saying, well, hang on a minute. We haven't agreed to any of these prime ministers. But we weren't asked. And this is another one where they won't be given a choice. So um, we'll have a new prime minister with no effective democratic mandate from the country. Uh, the last election produced uh, was on the basis of a manifesto of Boris Johnson. That's effectively been torn up. That was all about levelling up. Um, and that's uh, been abandoned. So you'll have, them, uh, yes, another prime minister with no popular mandate uh, and a, a pretty ungovernable Tory party uh, and cabinet. And as I've said, at each at each stage that a, a prime minister has been discarded, you also discard all the supporters in the cabinet of those of that prime minister. So you just run out of talent. So we then end up with uh, ministers who have absolutely no discernible uh, talents for running a department, a government of incompetence. I just don't know how much how much longer this can go on. It's it's uh, the world is looking on aghast, as are, are, of course are we. But have the British people learned the hard way that Brexit was an appalling idea, given that the vote was fairly close? I mean, we have in this country about, you know, close to half of the people are living in a state of delusion with a failed president who's trying to make a comeback based upon lies. You can basically say you've got half our electorate is in a state of delusion. Is half of the British electorate still in a state of delusion? Have they learned the hard way? that Brexit was kind of the original sin? Um, that's a very good question, and I would like to think that they are learning the hard way. They've certainly uh, uh, had to learn uh, um, what Brexit means by seeing it happen. And uh, if they were rational, they would see that it's gone extremely badly, that, that you couldn't point to a single benefit. Uh, the economy has been gradually shrinking from where it ought to be, uh, arguably by about 5% of GDP. We uh, were you know, fairly close to the size of the German economy at, in 2016. We've shrunk hugely since then. The same, uh, you know, the French economy has surged forward. We've gone backwards. And, you know, the, the country's been divided between the UK and Northern Ireland. So it, it has been a disaster. The, the trouble is that a lot of people voted for it and they're not um, necessarily ready to admit they made a mistake. Uh, and um, a lot of people voted for it for the wrong reasons or uh, not realising what it meant. I mean, it, it was rather extraordinary to be asking the electorate to take a, a vote on a, a very complex trading arrangement, which it, in fact was hugely to their benefit, but they didn't really understand it. So, you know, the single market was an amazing creation, uh, a trading uh, group of 27 countries with no tariffs or barriers, as long as you were a member of the club and signed up to the um, the minimum regulations which the group the club members had, had put into place and so you know it was just a, a mad decision to take ourselves away from 
that single market where we were doing 50% of our trade. Uh, but that wasn't something that people really understood. Uh, and they were harking back to imperial uh, delusions of how the British used to be when we had an empire, how we were in the 1950s, somehow that you know, Britain ruled away the world and we could get, get back to being uh, in a position of global dominance. I mean, it was, it was a total delusion uh, and uh, very much concentrated on people who were older uh, or uh, less educated. Uh, it was not not popular with younger people or people who'd been to university. You know, the country was very, very divided on it. Um, but uh, how quickly people will will realise uh, it was a mistake, I don't know. I, I would like to think that this latest, um, the collapse of the Liz Truss delusion will make people think, hang on a minute, you know, because they uh, the trust was making a virtue of not paying any attention to so-called experts. Uh, when she produced her budget, she made a point of not um, uh, following orthodoxy, not listening to her civil servants, not consulting the Office for Budget Responsibility, the OBR, um, basically saying that she knew best. Uh, and um, look what happened. And the same thing happened with Brexit. Of course, experts predicted that it would be a disaster in terms of trade and prosperity and growth. Uh, and the Brexiteers made a virtue of saying, oh, we don't want to listen to experts, primarily because they weren't telling them what they wanted to hear. So we've well, been living well, the last six years not le listening to experts, and this is what's happened. Well, we have the same problem over here. The, the Trump people are all fed that idea that there's an, a liberal elite that is the cause of all of their ills, as opposed to the corruption and incompetence of uh, Donald Trump and the kleptocracy that he uh, brought in here so uh, and he may make a comeback so the united states may be following in the path of of the uk um yeah but, but I, I think we've got a bit of hope now i think the fact that the um the 45 day experiment of of cutting taxes for the wealthy as a route to prosperity for everybody and a bit of trickle down you know that collapse has been so dramatic i it will it will not be tried again i mean if there was any hint of it you would only have to demonstrate what happened when it was tried this time. So I think that whole um, doctrine of, of trickle-down and cut, cutting taxes, I think is finished in the UK. I don't think it'll be coming back. Um, and uh, obviously one will has, have to see what, you know, pragmatically what will work in the future. And of course, what is likely to happen is people will pay attention to the models which have succeeded, which are generally European countries and particularly nor uh, northern ones, nor Nordic ones, where they have higher taxes, uh, but they have very low inequality. They have very, very high quali quality public services. As a result, they have very high public health. They have uh, everybody feels quite secure. They have good housing. Uh, people are in steady jobs. Uh, they have high unemployment pay if they're unfortunate enough to lose their jobs uh, and they have high growth so uh, you know the model is pretty clear we can see definitely what works and what doesn't work and i think it's very likely now that we will be returning uh, to that uh, european social democratic model having flirted um disastrously since 2010 with an extreme version of um free market economics I mean, in, in fact, in our view, in the view of the Progressive Economy Forum, this goes back to 1979 uh, with Margaret Thatcher and uh, what we call neoliberalism, which was, you know, the, the free market was designed to uh, 
uh, in their view, uh, to create um, innovation and growth. You know, the dead hand of the state was holding everything back. So you have to cut taxes and attract a trade union and actually celebrate inequality. Same thing happened in America, of course, under Reagan. And uh, it hasn't worked, but it, it, it got you know worse with knobs on since 2010 when we had austerity followed by Brexit. So I would like to think that that experiment has 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 come to its end, its ignominious end. Uh, we've tried it; it, uh, it has been um, exhaustively proved that it's a disaster. Uh, and I'm just hoping now that we will get back onto uh, the more progressive path, the path actually that worked very well after the Second World War in this country. We had a sensible democratic um, government, firstly by Attlee and then others where we created the welfare state. Uh, we had a highly directed state which targeted employment, maintenance of full employment. And we had, as a result, record-breaking growth never, never seen before or since. Uh, and a very, very um, uh, high increase in uh, incomes and GDP per head over 25 years. And those are the lessons that we should learn. That's what worked. We could see that worked. We abandoned it in favour of something else, which has not worked. So we sincerely hope that those lessons will be learned. You know, it's always useful to look back in economic history to see what has worked. Uh, those policies work very well indeed. And we need to update those policies to face the current challenges. Obviously, we've got challenges with Putin, China and um, the Ukraine war uh, and climate change and, um, you know, the unsustainability of unlimited growth. Uh, so we need to have state direction where we actually have green growth and sustainable growth. But I think the first task for the UK is to uh, have a war on poverty and inequality because, you know, it's just not sustainable at the moment. In this country, we, we you know, people don't earn enough to to keep themselves, um, give themselves enough money to feed themselves and pay for their housing and their transport, and you know that obviously that's a, that's a failed economy. And then the those who are not in work who have benefits, the benefits are not enough for them to uh, to keep alive and feed themselves. You know they have to rely on charity and food banks, which is just astonishing for a country which is apparently the sixth or seventh most uh, richest country in the world. So, you know, millions of people can't afford enough to eat in the UK, which is just amazing. Just in the last minute here, though, I'm running out of time, um, Patrick Allen. This leads there, I'm sure our audience is wondering, well, why doesn't the Labour Party take over? What's the problem? Well, the problem is that under the current parliamentary rules, the current parliament is due to last for another two years. And they have a majority in Parliament of 70. So unless there's a vote of no confidence in the government, there can't be a general election until the, the government under the Conservatives decides to call one. Uh, that it would be the case and unless it becomes clear over the next few weeks that uh, the, the government actually can't, can't govern the country. And that may be the case. So if they can't get through Parliament any of the measures that they want to get through, um, because there are so many factions, in the Tory party, and some even vote with the opposition, then we'll find that the government can't survive and they'll have, they'll ha there will be a vote of no confidence and there'll be a general election. But if they can somehow hold themselves together, they don't have to go to the country for another two years. Well, I mean, in my view, that's gonna be a complete disaster. And I don't think they have, uh, morally, they don't have a case to remain in government. They don't have a mandate uh, and they don't have a manifesto that anybody agrees with. 
Um, but it is possible that they can just uh, hang on into power for now and unless it, it becomes ungovernable. Now, I think all the signs are that, that they are, uh, um, that they can't govern the country. And I, um, we're going to see over the next uh, two to three weeks whether they can get anything, any of their measures through Parliament. If they can't, then we'd have a general election and I wouldn't rule it out. But if they um, manage to keep their legislation ro rolling, then we're stuck with them for another two years. Well, I thank you so much for joining us here today from the UK, Patrick Allen. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Patrick Allen, who is the founder and chair of the Progressive Economy Forum. We're going to take a brief station break and back investigating fears in Norway that Russia may be planning to sabotage Norwegian gas pipes following the arrest of eight Russians caught with drones and electronic equipment, one of whom is the son of a close confidant of Putin's. It's time to say goodbye Cause I'm the man who lost the British Empire Yes, I'm the one I let the sun go down Don't let the shadows lengthen And cover my good intentions they say the darkness... Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ambassador Peter Galbraith, who's an author and former U.S. diplomat. From 1993 to 1998, he served as the first U.S. ambassador to Croatia, where he negotiated and signed the agreement that ended the war in Croatia. And from 2000 to 2001, he was the Director for Political, Constitutional and Electoral Affairs for the the UN mission in East Timor, and in 2009 he was Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations serving in Afghanistan, and previously he was a staff member of the United States Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, and is the author of two books on Iraq, including the bestseller The End of Iraq, How American Incompetence Created a War Without End. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ambassador Peter Galbraith. Uh, good to be with you again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Peter. And, and your bio doesn't mention that you're married to a Norwegian and you have a family in Norway. And I just was reading in the Washington Post today that Norway is on edge over drone sightings and they've arrested a, a number of Russians, including the son of one of Putin's confidants. So what's the local uh, reaction in Norway? Uh, I think there's a lot of anxiety in Norway, um, it's a country where things run extremely well and there are very few crises. So when something like this happens, uh, it, it uh, is a focus of attention the way it wouldn't be in a more complex uh, country with many crises. Um, <clears throat> there have been uh, seven Russian citizens who have been arrested uh, and uh, for flying drones uh, over uh, sensitive installations. Uh, and and uh, what one has to bear in mind is that uh, Norway is the world's third largest producer of natural gas and liquefied natural gas. Uh, 20% of Europe's gas comes from Norway. 33% uh, comes from Russia. So uh, in a time when Russia's strategy is very much aimed at uh, at uh, uh, destroying the energy infrastructure in Ukraine, inflicting severe pain on the Ukrainians as winter approaches, 
and where it's taken a number of steps to uh, make it a tough winter on Europe, uh, including reducing flows through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which is uh, a, the major supplier of this uh, gas that Russia provides. And, and possibly, uh, there's a strong suspicion that it was also involved in the uh, sabotage of uh, that pipeline a few, few weeks ago. So in that context, then, to have Russians uh, being arrested, uh, uh, flying drones over sensitive Norwegian uh, facilities, uh, you know, is something that obviously puts Norwegians on edge, but uh, I think it ought to put everybody on edge. Well, the Norwegian prime minister blamed foreign intelligence services and directly implicated Russia in saying that the Russians are not allowed to fly drones in Norway. I mean, they arrested the Russian, several, actually more than one Russian, with drones. One was carrying two drones and electronic storage devices, and another was also, in fact, this is the son of Vladimir Kunin, who's a former president of Russian Railways and one of Putin's closest confidants. Yakunin was found with drones and electronic devices as well. Now, he's claiming he has dual citizenship with Russia and Britain. It's illegal for Russians to be flying drones, but not for British citizens. I don't know whether that's going to fly with the Norwegian courts. What do you think? Well, I think the Yakunin case is somewhat separate from these other cases. Uh, he he um, came with his, uh, I don't know, 88-foot yacht to Hammerfest in the north of Norway, incidentally, a place that has the largest LNG plant uh, in the north of Norway. And uh, then he went up to Svalbard, um, which is about 80 degrees north, one the, basically the northernmost inhabited place in the world, um, and was using the was using the drone up there. Um, it, it, the, Svalbard is, is a bit curious because the Russians do have some rights there. Uh, uh, they have, for example, the right to uh, enter the waters of Svalbard, uh, but not the Norwegians say, no, under the Svalbard Treaty, they don't have the right to fly, partly because at the time the treaty was done, there, there weren't aircraft uh, or air, 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 uh, aircraft were in their infancy. Now, why a British citizen with a big yacht would be doing this for Putin, I think that's a little curious. But these other cases are, are more straightforward. Uh, there was a, a fellow who was arrested uh, near Kirchenes crossing, uh, that's at the extreme north of Norway, uh, uh, crossing into Russia. Uh, Norway is, uh, well, it, it was the, the, the one of two NATO countries to have a border with the Soviet Union, um, now with Russia. Um, and uh, he was caught with two drones with lots of material in it. Uh, another Russian was caught flying over the airport in Tromso in the far north of Norway, uh, and now that airport is used to resupply uh, the uh, oil industry and, and the offshore oil platforms. And then another was arrested flying over the airport in Bergen. Bergen is Norway's second largest city, but it is also the hub uh, for a number of the gas pipelines that uh, go from Norway to Europe, uh, including the uh, Z-pipe 1 and 2. So... Um, it, it it really is um, 
uh, interesting that that this is going on. And and frankly, I think it's consistent with Russian tactics. First, um, it's a good way to increase anxiety. And in a time when Russia is under a lot of pressure, I think uh, this is something that that the Russians would like to do. Um, but secondly, it, it's kind of, it's a low risk, relatively low risk way to uh, undermine the NATO, the Western countries. Um, you know, sabotaging uh, uh, gas pipelines is obviously not the same thing as a direct attack, particularly if you can do it in a uh, covert way. Uh, so, but but clearly Russia's goal is to make uh, Europe uh, as cold and as uncomfortable as possible this winter, uh, so as to diminish support for uh, the Ukrainians in the Ukraine war. So they've already blown up Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. I think it's reasonable. And it was done as a covert operation. And it was also clever in the sense that it got them out of contracts with force majeure. They might well even, the Russians or Gazprom might well even, you know, claim insurance. So assuming that that's the case, which I think is a pretty safe assumption, they've already blown up gas pipelines. So I understand that the Norwegian authorities are securing their critical infrastructure, but what can they do to protect these pipelines? Well, it, it's it's hard to protect the pipelines when they when they get underwater because you you can use uh, you know submarines and other uh, d- devices to attack them, and and it, the the you know the, the attacker is not easily detected. <clears throat> I mean, it's also possible when you have a onshore facility that you could engage in some kind of sabotage that would at least temporarily reduce the flow of gas. And again, part of your goal to make Europe cold this winter, to, to get European publics to turn against governments that are uh, uh, supporting the war in Ukraine. So with Norway supplying 20% of the gas to Europe and, and the Russians 33%, so the Russian gas is not flowing. So what kind of extra capacity does Norway have to make up the difference there? I, I don't know uh, specifically how much extra capacity Norway has, but I would think the extra capacity is limited. Gas is, uh, as I understand it, different from uh, oil production where, uh, you know, sometimes you can ramp up production. Here, you, you know, you need to have a, a fairly steady flow. And these are North Sea fields over the long term. They've been declining. So I, I think there's a, a fairly long lead time before you can ramp up gas production. They may be able to do some, you know, some percentages. But, you know, 20 percent is very significant. And again, Norway is the uh, is uh, the world's third largest gas exporter. And of course, they are building LNG terminals as quickly as they can in Europe to make up for this loss. And of course, the British government has been paralyzed since Brexit and more lately with leadership struggles with Ming the Tories. And they really haven't focused on the need to deal with this energy crisis. The Germans seem to be making strides in that department. But I take it that no matter what they do, there's going to be a shortfall in heating this winter, right? Both in terms of, well, not about in terms of oil, but certainly in terms of gas. Uh, certainly. And with any alternative, it 
there's a long lead time before you can ramp up. Now, Germany is going back to coal. Uh, it might extend it, the life of some of the nuclear power plants that was planning to shut down. But you, you cannot quickly make up the kind of deficit that, that Europe is facing. Uh, and uh, then on top of that, as, as you point out, Ian, uh, uh, Great Britain is in chaos. You know, it's uh, just uh, had its the latest prime minister resign. Uh, she will have had the shortest tenure in, uh, of any prime minister uh, in, in, since the office was created some 300 years ago. Uh, and th there are things going on in Britain. For example, today, the uh, undersea cables between, the, between Britain and uh, the Shetland Islands were cut. Now, the Shetland Islands are a major hub for the British part of the North Sea oil industry. Uh, was this uh, an accident or an act of sabotage? And that follows last week, uh, the cutting of the of the undersea cable. And these cables provide phone service, uh, internet, um, uh, uh, other essential communications uh, uh, material, which are, of course, essential for the oil industry. But uh, uh, last week, the, the cable to the Faroe Islands was cut uh, from Shetland to the Faroe Islands. Um, you know, again, it's the all these things that they they could just be accidents, but this is a time when Europeans are are very nervous. Well, that's hardly coincidental, isn't it? I mean, on top of the drones in Norway, it does look like an FSB or SVR operation, albeit not the A team, as we learned from the assassination attempts on Navalny. Russian intelligence services. Uh, are not quite as professional as they were during the Cold War. But under Putin, they're more audacious, are they not? Well, I, I think we have to be careful about jumping to conclusions. Um, uh, we, we, we don't know whether the two undersea cables were the result of sabotage or uh, an accident with a trawler or something else. We don't know, you know, what what it is these guys were doing with drones, and you know, the, the, it would seem that that if, you know Russia would have other means to to get intel, uh, including satellites, without having to use uh, 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 you know uh, fifty year old men, uh, which one of these guys was, you know, with flying a couple of drones. Uh, on the other hand, you know, you can't escape the the conclusion that. You know, what was any Russian citizen thinking if they were just on their hobby flying drones over, uh, you know, airports in Norway and, 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 and a, uh, you know, sensitive military facility near Mushan, uh, another port on the coast? So we, we really don't know. Um, but it is consistent with um, and with, with the idea of a, you know, of, of, a, of a low cost operation. Uh, intended to do two things: first, to increase anxiety, and and possibly to, you know, uh, do something concrete to reduce uh, gas to to Europe this winter, without bearing the kind of costs Russia would bear from some kind of direct attack on a NATO country. Well, Ambassador Peter Garbeth, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, as as always, it's a, a great pleasure to be talking with you. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Ambassador Peter Galbraith, an author and former U.S. diplomat from 1993 to 1998. He served as the first U.S. ambassador to Croatia, where he negotiated and signed 
the agreement that ended the war in Croatia, and from 2000 to 2001 he was Director for Political, Constitutional and Electoral Affairs for the United Nations Mission in East Timor, and in 2009 he was an Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations serving in Afghanistan, and previously he was a staff member of the U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations and is the author of two books on Iraq, including the bestseller The End of Iraq, How American Incompetence Created a War Without End. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into a new report on the record amount of money pouring into state races, including state secretary of state offices overseeing elections with 299 Republican election deniers running as candidates in the upcoming November 8 elections. Cold, cold ground. Hold on me a cry, baby, when there's wood in the shed. There's a bird in the chimney and a stone in my bed. And the roads washed out, we passed the bottle around And weighed in the arms of the cold, cold ground The cold, cold ground The cold, cold ground Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org And joining us now is Anna Masolia, who's a research editor and writer based in Washington, D.C. at the Center for Responsive Politics, where she studies foreign influence, digital and political ads, and is responsible for Open Secrets Dark Money Data, as well as its Foreign Lobby Watch. Trained as a lawyer, she was appointed to the U.S. Treasury Department to be a member of the Taxpayer Advocacy Panel, a federal advisory committee to the IRS. And she's an editor of a new report, at Open Secrets, state-level midterm election fundraising on track to exceed $7 billion. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anna Masolia. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, your new study says that in this current cycle for state races, it's projected that $7 billion will be raised. That compares to 20, the 2018 midterms, uh, where there was a record of $6.6 billion raised. And essentially, the Republican candidates are on pace to out-raise Democratic candidates by 17% during this 2022 cycle. So have you done a breakdown on what state races are getting this money? Because... One of the concerns is that you've got 299 election deniers running in this cycle on the Republican side, and they have targeted Secretary of State races. And the concern is that if you have election deniers in charge of the electoral machinery at the state and local level, then that would guarantee that the Republicans would win and make Democratic votes meaningless. Um, we have looked at election deniers, and just as a quick correction, um, the report that you mentioned is written by uh, one of my wonderful colleagues, Pete Quist. Uh, so just to, to give him a great shout out, that's written by uh, one of our members of our state team who have all done some amazing work. Uh, we have done some look at some looks at our at, the, at election deniers breakdown in particular with Secretary of State elections, where groups like the America First Coalition for Secretary of States um, has been spending in support of election deniers across the country. Um, right now, we've seen 
money going into those races where there's particular interest from election deniers because they will be in a, they would be potentially in a position to not just be overseeing elections at the state level but also at the federal level. Um, this is something where you're also seeing election deniers running for gubernatorial positions and even attorney general's positions. Um, one of the interesting issues raised by this is you're seeing dark money flowing into these elections as well through those groups. Um, so it's you're not not only are you seeing big money going into these races and supporting these candidates, but also money from unknown sources. Well, that's certainly happening at the federal level, right? With this, particularly with the Senate. And do we know where this dark money is coming from? Because the Democrats for the Senate now are in a state of panic. They're getting being outspent. There's just Mitch McConnell and company just f- throwing money in to the race. And I understand that that money might well be coming from Leonard Leo, who got $1.6 billion of dark money recently from just from one donor alone. We are certainly seeing money going into the Senate as well as House races. Um, Dark money isn't going anywhere. One thing that has been particularly challenging this election cycle is that not only are we seeing more dark money going in, it is not being disclosed to the Federal Election Commission in the same way that it has in many prior cycles. Um, This is a trend that we started tracking in 2018 and 2020 as well, but increasingly in the 2022 election cycle, we are seeing dark money groups not just spending directly on independent expenditures that are using words like vote for and vote against a candidate, but also spending on electioneering communications and issue ads, boosting candidates, without using those magic words. And so effectively attacking attacking these candidates, painting or favor, painting a favorable picture of the candidates in a way that those that not just are their donors not being disclosed, but their spending is not even being disclosed. Increasingly with the reliance on online ads, there are a number of loopholes that are allowing these groups to n- spend, in some cases, tens of millions of dollars without disclosing that spending to the Federal Election Commission. We're also increasingly seeing dark money groups routing that spending through super PACs. So these are groups that ca- that are by nature political, unlike 501c4s. And because of that, they are legally required to disclose their donors, but can spend unlimited sums on elections. But even when they are legally required to disclose their donors, there's nothing stopping them from taking as much money as they would like from affiliated dark money groups, which effectively defeats the purpose of these disclosure requirements, requiring them to disclose their donors because the ultimate source of funding is still unknown. Uh, and of course, you mentioned Leonard Leo, Leonard Leo being a key figure in the dark money world where um, this uh, $1.6 billion has gone to an, a, tr- a newer trust, a Marble Freedom Trust that we don't really know where that money has gone yet. We And because of that, you're seeing this unlimited source of funds because we just don't know where that money is coming from, where it's ending up. We haven't seen Marble Freedom Trust showing up as a donor uh, yet this election cycle, but certainly uh, Judicial Crisis Network uh, and the Concord Fund are not going away anywhere. Typically, they have been more active around Supreme Court elections, but most recently, one of the new additions to that network, of course, is the Honest Elections Project, which has been spending in support of voter restrictions across the country. So it's not all that network has been receiving this huge cash infusion um, and also diversifying what it's being what started spending on. So are these dark money groups and super PACs, are they avoiding FEC filing rules or are they just have they just found loopholes 
depending on the group, um, in many cases, their ability to spend these unlimited sums without disclosing to the federal election is completely legal. Uh, so in the case of the top dark money group of the 2022 election cycle, we have One Nation, which is a 501c4 that's affiliated with Senate Republican leadership. This group has given more than $85 million to an affiliated super PAC called Senate Leadership Fund, which also happens to be the top spending super PAC of the 2022 election cycle. That is entirely legal. We also have One Nation spending on issue ads and support of Republican Senate candidates across the country. Because they're avoiding those magic words, the vote for, vote against, they can attack Democratic candidates and support Republican candidates as much as they want. And just to emphasize, this is not something that's just happening on one side of the aisle. This is something where um, on the left, we have majority forward, which is effectively the equivalent of one nation. And Majority Forward has also given tens of millions of dollars to uh, Senate Majority PAC, which is another top spending super PAC on the 2022 election cycle. Majority Forward has also spent millions of dollars on similar issue ads, either attacking Republicans or boosting Democrats. And even at the House level, we have these groups affiliated with party leadership. And not just do we have the party leadership groups, you also have a wide range of other dark money groups pouring money into influencing U.S. elections, whether that be through contributions to super PACs or issue ads. And all of this is entirely legal for them to do without ever having to disclose their donors. And in many cases, without ever, ever having to disclose their spending to the Federal Election Commission. And just back to the state races that this new report from Open Secret State Level Midterm Election Fundraising on track to exceed $7 billion. To break down that $7 billion, the Republicans have projected to spend just over $3 billion, while Democrats have estimated to spend about $2.7 billion. So the domination of money in our politics is a bipartisan disgrace, but it's a result of the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision. And since uh, Leonard Leo has created this Supreme Court, uh, this majority, uh, when he got put out five of the six on of the conservative or right-wing side under the court, it's hard not to notice a, a connection there, right? Absolutely. In many cases, you do have the same dark money groups spending to either put people on the Supreme Court or to get members of Congress or state senators and state representatives elected as who are benefiting from the rules that they're putting in place. So even at the state level, you have a wide range of state campaign finance rules um, and disclosure requirements across the country. And the people who are putting them in place, whether that be the state, the state legislators or in some cases, governors, um, may have benefited greatly from the groups that are now benefiting from the rules that they put in place. And Anna Masolia, the new study from Open Secrets says that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Texas Governor Greg Abbott are significantly outraising their challenges. So what kind of a chance does Beto O'Rourke or Charlie Crist have? I mean, are they that far, how far behind are they? Well, it's hard to tell at this point. Money doesn't always win, but it certainly uh, has an advantage in those cases. We are seeing big donors getting involved in many of these elections. Um, in gubernatorial elections, DeSantis has set a new record for gubernatorial races, but we're also, and that's something with even without self-funding, but we're also seeing in some races, um, races like in Illinois, where Pritzker is pouring in his own money. And there's a big difference between these major donors coming in, um, where especially in Florida, where you there really aren't contribution limits to some of what DeSantis is able to take um, with his outside pack, which he's able 
which through through a variety of ways is able to solicit more funds than in some other states. But you also have uh, a small dollar donor funds going in. And so it's a combination of both these mega donor spending and small dollar funds. And so it's hard to tell just based on looking at their campaigns who is going to win just as a predictive because there's so many different factors at play, whether that be that outside spending the grassroots support and also the mega donors. Um, and as we go into the final weeks of election, a lot of, a lot can change, especially with these closer races. So in terms of secretaries of state, which we talked about earlier, because it's being targeted by the election deniers, that it looks from the graphs in your study, the top 10 most expensive secretary of state races in 2022, Illinois is by far the most expensive, and then Michigan, then Georgia, and then Colorado, then Ohio, then Arizona, then Nevada, and then Connecticut, then Massachusetts, and then California. That That's surprising because most of the concern is about Arizona. But why is Illinois, why is so much money pouring into the Secretary of State's race in Illinois? That would probably be a question for one of my colleagues who wrote the article and uh, is more of a state-focused um is more state focused, but that uh, in some of those races, at least you do have um, election deniers running in multiple of the states that you mentioned, where you do see that being an impetus not just for the fundraising for the election denier, but also as a counter movement. Um, in almost every state, um, I believe, except for one where you have an election denier running, the Democrats have outraised the Republican candidate so far, but it is driving up that fundraising. Um, mm-hmm. You also have Swing states being, I believe, perhaps in Illinois, that's one correlation where you have swing states like Michigan and Ohio and increasingly purple states like Georgia attracting more funding. And that's something that in Secretary of State's races is also translating. So it's not just something where you have swing states where you would you know to expect it with House races and Senate races, but also in Secretary of State's races where you're putting a candidate in who's going to oversee elections ahead of the next election cycle, so ahead of that presidential cycle, um, where they would be in a position to be have a hand potentially in how those elections are administered and how results are handled um, in races that will be crucial for, um, for that cycle. Well, the study also looks at the ballot measures battles in the various states, dominated largely by California, which is uh, unfortunately the... Um, proposition regime here in California is abused by big money. Now you have two gambling propositions here in California, Proposition 26 and 27. 26 so far, they've spent $103 million. On 27, they've spent $203 million, roughly. On 29, the dialysis clinic staffing requirements, about $45 million. I mean, it's outrageous the, the amount of money's coming in. And of course, any sensible person would vote no on 26 and 27. And on 29, the dialysis clinic, all that money is coming from the monopolies that control the dialysis clinics. And they don't want to have to spend more money to have improve their, their medical conditions. So they're, that's straightforward <laughs> self-interest, right? It's amazing. I mean, and one of them is Proposition 30, which the governor of California is dead against, that measure was written by the rideshare company Lyft for its own benefit. So it's so corrupt, it's really disgusting. And of course, their advertising is so deceptive. 
it really is is a system that maybe have to has to be stopped but it dominates both California politics and the California airwaves ballot initiatives really are attracting more money than ever in California as you mentioned it's I think the, leading the way in that, uh, we had multiple ballot measures where you have these multi-million dollar battles uh, that are uh, setting new records this year. And so it's something that has really upped the ante of just how expensive ballot measure fights can be. And California being the state that has really set those records. I know that the sports betting industry has poured um, substantial amounts of money into um, one of the fights that you mentioned over, I believe it's Proposition 26 and 27, where it was over 200 and 40 million last time we checked. Um, and I know that that's something that's continued to spend. And that's a new record for not just California, but for the country. And that's not the only real extraordinarily expensive ballot measure. And in particular with ride shares, California isn't the only state seeing that. And so you're seeing not just industries spending on ballot measures that could have their own benefit, but directly trying to impact how voters see those measures and to sway the outcomes of these elections in a way that's very similar to lobbying. And so you're getting national level groups and companies and industries getting involved at a very state and sometimes even local level to influence these ballot measures. So just in the last couple of minutes, and Anna Masolia, are there any statistics on how small donors compete with these big donors. In other words, you know, Bernie Sanders, I think, was the first to show that you could be competitive with small donors. I think the average for him was, what, 22 or $27. So is, is there anything out there that might cheer us up a little bit that there is a way for citizens to fight back in this democracy dominated by big money? We are certainly seeing a rise in small dollar donations. There is increasingly a movement towards grassroots support where there is increased interest among small donors. There are new platforms to cater primarily to small donors, such as Act Blue on the left and Win Red on the right, where you're seeing that reemergence. We're tracking an increase in small dollar donations across the board at the state as well as the federal level. Um, and that's something that many candidates have tried to attract um, and in some cases even have started rejecting corporate PAC money. Uh, that said, big money is not going away. We certainly have seen big donors continue to play a major role in 2022 elections. And so we're really seeing both of those happening simultaneously to some extent in the 2022 elections. Um, but it certainly has created a counterforce uh, to the big donors by seeing that rise in small donations. Well, Anna Masolia, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Anna Masolia, who's a researcher, editor and writer based in Washington, D.C. at the Center for Responsive Politics, where she studies foreign influence, digital and political ads, and is responsible for Open Secrets Dark Money Data, as well as its Foreign Lobby Watch. Trained as a lawyer, she was appointed by the United States Treasury Department to be a member of the Taxpayer Advocacy Panel, a federal advisory committee to the IRS. And she's an editor of a new report at Open Secrets, state-level midterm election fundraising on track to exceed $7 billion.
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Oh